this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 40. We're recording on Friday, February 14th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Morning, Jeff. Morning. It's It's been a snowy uh, winter, and I'm, I'm a little uh, loopy, I have to admit. I got a little of the fever, a little cabin fever. A little fever. I, I may or may not be watching uh, House Hunters International only for the South American uh, <laughs> vistas right Just now. wish fulfillment. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting pretty bad. But I am sorry to hear that. It is the middle of February. It's March Valentine's is on the horizon. Day. The, it's a little warmer today here in uh, Hoth, Brooklyn, and uh, I'm feeling a little bit better. But a... I've got to admit, yesterday morning when I was pushing the stroller through whatever you called that horribleness... <laughs> I was like, I'm getting out. I got to leave. I'm just, no, no, no more of this. But it's a little better today. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, yeah. I'm humming long December in my head now, even though it's <laughs> yeah. February. It feels like that's holding on. We just got our first real snow you guys did to get speak hammered of down there. in Richmond, yeah, in Richmond. Um, over the last couple of how, days. How much did you get in? Did uh, we got four-ish inches, but mm-hmm. um, some friends who live just a little bit south of us here got eight. So A, a gentleman would call that five to seven. Yes. Um, Five to seven, mm-hmm. uh, which is, it's good for me. It's Valentine's Day today. I love snow. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a nice, happy Valentine's Day gift for me from the universe. And I get to spend it with you on our oh, 40th episode. Our 40th episode. Which we're we, going to have a midlife crisis. It will the podcast not be, is going to go buy a convertible. It will not be as over. depressing as that terrible Judd Apatow I didn't, it movie. was, I can't watch that. I'm too close to 40, too close to home. I, I do to, not recommend it. I'm not, okay, <laughs> thanks. That's that's all the confirmation bias I need to get through that. Well, you know where it's not snowy? Where is it it's not, not snowy? It's not snowy in Seattle. And in Seattle is where the Hotel Sorrento, which we talked about last week, that has the silent reading party. Mm-hmm. It's in Seattle, not Chicago. Yeah, we got in our head it was in Chicago. Totally my bad. And a lot of people corrected us. We thank you profusely. Um, well, profusely might be strong, but we do thank you. We've been wrong about worse things. Yeah. So the next time you're in Seattle, go check out the Hotel Sorrento on the first Wednesday of every month, and you can sit there and read quietly with a bunch of strangers, which... That I mean, description does not make it sound awesome, but it does. Feel I don't awesome. know. That sounds kind of awesome to me. <laughs> it's kind of all I want in life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing we're, you know, we track, you know, there's, there's a few things we track pretty carefully. And we're both on the Barnes and Noble scent. Mm-hmm. We, we both care about that. Um, and part of that has been the roller coaster fortunes of Nook, where two or three years ago, it looked like Nook was the future of Barnes and Noble. And now it looks like it may not even be part of the present at Barnes and Noble. They laid off their engineering, their hardware engineering staff, which they haven't released anything to say we're not making tablets or e-readers anymore. But the writing is on the wall that they're going to get out of the hardware game, which I think means that Nook will live on in the future as an app that you can put on other devices, mm-hmm. but probably not as hardware. What do you think about that? I think that's the right guess. And you don't really have to make a formal announcement that you're discontinuing the production of your hardware when 
when it has been announced that you have let your entire engineering division mm-hmm. go, uh, that that really speaks for itself. I think at least for a while, the Nook app has to stay around because there are people who own content from Barnes & Noble and who will want to read those books. I know um, I had a Nook for a few years and I definitely have impulse purchased Nook eBooks that I have not read yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I'm sl- sort of slowly making my way through via the Nook app on my phone and on my iPad, which is what I read on now. Um, so just anecdotally, I would think that that would have to continue, but I would honestly be kind of surprised if um, they found it valuable and necessary to continue the um, e-reading app, their own e-reading app down the line. And I didn't know that I thought this until it just came out of my mouth. You so, know, you think they, you could think they could just be Barnes and Noble, BN.com, sell your print books and this, you know, the physical stores. I'm a little just worried now about what Barnes and Noble thinks it's about. I'm really, I wonder. I um, think, um, you know, you can. This is my um, kind of thumbnail version. I was talking with our friend Quint about this yesterday. I think if there's a future for print, there's a future for Barnes & Noble. That, that's my take. Mm-hmm. Like if there's, if there's going to be an ongoing, relatively robust market for print, then Barnes & Noble can be a part of that. Their profits were up as they were closing some stores that were underperforming. I think they're going to jettison – the Nook hardware business is costing them so much money that it's sucking up the, whatever money they're making from their regular operations. Yeah. Um, And it could be they're realizing that our future is we're going to exist, but we're going to be smaller. And well, they did. It seems to me they have failed to be able to balance and and have their fingers in both pies, so to speak. You know, well, they're different businesses. I mean, that's the thing. They're radically different. They know how to be a a print bookstore. They know how to have a great newsstand. I still know people who can only find the obscure magazine that they want to read at the Barnes and Noble um, newsstand. And at least in Richmond, you know, we don't have great uh, little magazine stands on every corner here. And so if you want a huge selection of magazines, you're going to Barnes and Noble. Um, They know how to be sort of a community center. They've definitely figured out how to sell, you know, games and non-book stuff to kids. Um, And we've talked about like the percentage of um, print book sales that were picture books in the past couple of years or that were children's books being, uh, you know, kids books are still continuing to do really well in print. So this looks to me like Barnes and Noble saying like, okay, hey, we recognize that we have not figured out the digital thing. And they're, you know, rather than continuing to try to reinvent the wheel or figure it out, they're backing out of digital. Um, I think it's fine. They know how to be a print bookstore and it is just fine if they want to focus their efforts there. It might be smarter in the long run to put all of their time and money and focus towards being a good uh, print bookstore if print is going to continue to be a thing, which uh, we both think it will. Yeah. The tea leaves seem to be turning a little bit in that. Like, even 18 or 24 months ago, I think there was a real nervousness that like ebooks were going to eat everything. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen ebook growth slow, um, and we've seen the the fortunes of print book sellers turn around. Actually, we're going to talk about this a little bit later um, with bookstore sales over time. But it does feel like maybe they realize that they can be a profitable company. They're just not going to be a huge giant company. All right, we got to get to our first sponsor. We're going we're going to get down the rabbit hole of what we think about Barnes and Noble. <laughs> Uh, we've got a new sponsor today. I'm really glad to have Warby Parker as a sponsor for the show. So, I don't know. Y- you wear glasses sometimes, right? I wear glasses to read. I was like to the read, first yeah. 16-year-old to need reading yeah. glasses. <laughs> I've, been re- I've been wearing glasses full-time since I was about nine months old. And um, as everybody knows, trying on glasses and going to, glass, to buy glasses is really hard. Like, all of our faces are weird and different. 
um, and you go to some physical place and it can be hard to find something you're like, and they're super expensive, right? Like a surprisingly expensive item. Well, Warby Parker started with the idea that glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Their prescription glasses start at $95, which if you've bought prescription glasses recently, you know it's a heck of a deal. Um, and that includes the prescription lenses. And they have, a, they have a step up the titanium collection. And it, since it's called titanium, it's a little more expensive, $145, including prescription lenses. Uh, prescription lenses. They use Japanese titanium and French non-rocking screws. So it's really good quality stuff. You're not, you're not paying less for less. You're actually paying less for more with War Warby Parker. All glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. And that comes at no additional cost. You get a case, you get a cleaning cloth, all within there. Um, you're ready to go. And, and the Warby Parker, they, they've been an industry leader, and they've changed a lot of the way a lot of companies are trying on e-commerce. Because I've buried the lead a little bit, but this is a website. WarbyParker.com. You can go. They've got a nice tool there where you can take like a screenshot of yourself with your camera and you enter it into the website and you can like put the glasses on your face and just sort of get a sense of which ones you want. And then you can pick out five and you have them shipped directly to you for free. You try them on. You can, you know, ask your significant other, ask your boss, ask your friend, ask your mom, whoever you want to ask. Um, you can keep them for five days and send them back prepaid return shipping, so you don't have to do anything, you don't have to worry about that. Um, and then you pick the one you want, and then they'll start making them right away, even before you send the glasses back. And then usually in 10 business days, and usually less, you'll get them back. It's so great. It's so cool. I Home mean, it's try really, on. They really, they really make this stuff easy. And for every pair of glasses sold, they give a pair to someone in need. Um, you can also, also get great. sunglasses. I, I know it doesn't feel like summer's coming. But, but it does. It's that first day you need new sunglasses where you're like, oh, it's too late, right? So you, you're scrambling for sunglasses. So you might start thinking about sunglasses right now. Another thing nice about Warby Parker as being an online store, they don't have to rotate stock. So in February, they're not going to have fewer sunglasses like a lot of brick and mortar stores. Mm -hmm. They have to ro rotate stuff in and out. Yeah. The, the home try on thing, I cannot, I just can't say how appealing I find that. Like I'm, I find that in the internet age, I am doing everything I possibly can to not have to leave my house to purchase things. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, send me the clothing and I will try it on and then keep the things that I like. Or when I'm uh, ordering shoes, I order like five pairs of shoes and then just keep the one that I want and send the rest of them back. And I love that you can do this with Warby Parker for glasses. And, so, and like, the glasses are really cool. They like, are. They, they're it's awesome. It's like a retro sort of, you know, vintage. The selection is way better than you're going to find. Like, and and Warby Parker is a literary name. I know. To, I, I know. Right? Yeah, they um, both the founders of Warby Parker love Kerouac, and two of his earliest characters that were uncovered in his personal journals were named Zag Parker and Warby Pepper. And so they nice. took the best from each one and they made it their name. And so particularly for uh, for book nerds like us, there are some great options here. Um, I think it's fantastic. And if you've ever stood there in the optometrist's oh, office and the had them worst. be like, those are gorgeous frames on you. And would you like us to add the anti-glare coating since you work on a computer all day and it'll only cost $300. And then you're like, oh God, all of a sudden. This yeah. Anti-glare coating is like, the floor mat, the, you know, the floor mats of uh, it totally glasses is. shopping yeah, or the anti-rust spray that they, you so, know. If you give this a shot, you can go to warbyparker.com slash bookriot, and that just lets them know that you came from uh, from us. It supports the show, and hopefully they will continue to sponsor, and you will look fantastic in your new glasses that did not cost you an arm and a leg, so you'll have more money to spend on books. And if you use them, and if you do use them to buy, War if you've bought glasses of Warby Parker, 
even if it wasn't before this spot, which is a mistake, but you know, after the spot, especially, send us a picture of you and your Warbury Parker glasses and we'll look at it and uh, we'll cheer you on. And maybe if you let us, we'll put it in the show notes so people can see, um, you know, who, who likes a, a good pair of uh, glasses better than book nerds? I can't think of who. <laughs> Um, I bet there's a lot of glasses in Washington, D.C. That was you, nicely you know done, my friend. But see, you stepped on it. You don't say that was nicely done. You just let it lie. <laughs> you let it lie. This is becoming a thing I look forward to every week. Is how my is Jeff going to segue this that one? That was good. I, so we're talking about America's most literate cities, a new poll by Central Connecticut State University. They do this every year. Um, and every year that I've followed it, Washington, D.C. comes out on top. Mm-hmm. And they, we're, there's a lot to talk about here. I think the first we'll just look at the top 10 cities and then we'll talk about methodology corner. Oh, yeah. Um, this study focused on six key indicators of literacy, number of bookstores, um, mental asterisks, mm-hmm. uh, educational attainment, <clears throat> mental asterisk, internet resources, <clears throat> internet ac- uh, mental asterisk, library resources, periodical publishing resources, and newspaper circulation. So... Uh, so we said DC's one. Let's see. How can we make this interesting rather than just read them down? Any surprises before we tell them the whole list? St. Louis is number nine. The SLU. And uh, Atlanta and Pittsburgh tied yeah. for, functionally tied for fourth, fourth or fifth, and fifth together. Yeah, so they call right. them 4.5. Um, those to me were both surprising. You know, Atlanta has a lot of great um, cultural stuff, but we don't hear about Atlanta as a literary destination mm-hmm. really um and pittsburgh just sort of gets a bum rap yeah steel um, town i'm um, i guess i'm also surprised well it's interesting minneapolis is ranked number three and st paul is ranked number seven no doubt i and, thought that was interesting uh well I, I i knew the twin cities were very literary um gray wolf publishing is mm-hmm. uh is based there and there's a lot of actually interesting independent publishers uh, and a lot of great arts in that area but in general like, why separate st paul and minneapolis well because they're much, different cities but pretty I mean, much they always yeah, live together know. you know That's where there's That's one there's point. the other um, um but it's interesting that they fall four spaces apart from each other on this list and i wonder what the factors were that did like are all the bookstores in minneapolis and not in st paul for the twin I, cities I don't, I don't know that's a really good question they could have um yeah, it could fall that way. It could be some of the newspaper stuff mm-hmm. happens in Minneapolis rather than St. Paul. So here they are, one through, well, I guess, uh, yeah, one through 10. Are we surprised that New York is not on this list? No, and I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, DC 1, Seattle 2, Minneapolis 3, Atlanta and Pittsburgh tying for four and a half, essentially. Denver 6, uh, St. Paul 7, Boston 8, St. Louis 9, and San Francisco 10. Um, so I'll tell you why not New York. And, and the reason is it's too big. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 7 million people and there's a lot of diversity in terms of income and educational attainment to use their language. So while there, if you're, if, if New York was just the Upper West Side in Greenwich Village, it would be number one with a bullet, but you know, it, it takes on a lot of the, um, you know, character to see there's a lot more to Queens and Brooklyn that people know. And a lot of these other cities that are on here, the parts of the town that may not reflect as well in this poll are not technically part of the city, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, things can work a little bit differently. Uh, D.C. is a classic example. Washington, D.C. itself is really, you know, hyper-local and dense. But if you widen the circle, things can change pretty quickly. So that's one reason there. Um, also, New York's libraries are really underfunded. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you can ask our friend Rita Mead about that. Um, also, the number of bookstores, there's a lot of them in Manhattan, but there's not a lot of them in these little places we call Queens and Brooklyn um, for the number, of, especially given the number of people that are there. Um, you know, there's not, I think there's one Barnes and Noble in all of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a few good, there's really, there's a few, three or four really good independent bookstores, but you know, that's, that's for three and a half million right, people that's in really Brooklyn. Not very many. Not, not a whole lot. So yeah, I'm a little surprised about Atlanta because I'm a biased jerk. Um, I think in Pittsburgh in the same way, I've heard Pittsburgh's a great town. I, I keep hearing this, um, beyond whatever the cliche might be. So I guess um, it's interesting to me that Austin's not on here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Texas is bad with independent bookstores on the whole uh, per capita. I know mm -hmm. that to be the case. Uh, I'm a little surprised that Boston isn't higher. Um, I've long heard, well, I guess some of that is Cambridge gets separated out from Boston there um, because Cambridge is often called the most literate small city in America mm -hmm. and has the highest ratio of PhDs per capita in America. Um, any other things that not Portland, Oregon, I was a little surprised maybe didn't come in higher a little bit. Um, I guess Powell's is such a, I mean, they don't, I guess we, the number of bookstores doesn't equate to like square feet of bookstores because Powell's right. like is essentially like 25 bookstores. Yeah, and I was thinking all about rolled into one. like LA and Southern California, there are a bunch of really incredible, very well known independent bookstores, but they're I don't all know. In little towns, right? That are suburbs they're not all within places. the city yeah. limits of Los Angeles, and LA has um, some of the same things going on that New York has going on that you were talking about in terms of vast diversity between Chicago's probably falls victim to that to some degree. Yeah, I think Chicago well. fits. And Chicago has some of the um, the Cambridge Boston question yeah. also. Of, Evanston is that the one? Right, up Chicago there in proper is one situation, and then all of the you know the little sort of suburbs or little towns that lie right up next to Chicago. What actually residents call the Greater Chicago Land Area. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chicago Land would probably qualify um, for this because of. Evanston was Northwestern University because of some of the little cities just south of Chicago that um, that house universities as well um, with, you know, lots of high educational attainment. But um, Chicago proper uh, only has a couple uh, bookstores that I can think of. And most of the uh, I lived in I went to college in Chicago. I lived there for four years. And most of the bookstores that I knew I lived in the city and I usually had to leave the city um, to go bookstore shopping, with the exception of um, Unabridged Bookstore, which is in the Belmont neighborhood, and our mm -hmm. friend Stefan runs it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was I think Chicago, I mean, great libraries, but I don't know what their funding is like. Um, also a very diverse population. It's interesting that the big, big cities have, will have the hardest time making yeah. this mm -hmm. list. And I, th I think you're onto something with how small Washington, D.C. proper is right. how mm -hmm. expensive it is to live in mm -hmm. Washington DC proper. Um, also, well, just the number of people that live there for one reason that's right. to be close to the capital, right? And Government. those people are disproportionately educated, mm -hmm. right? And you know, 
uh, knowledge workers. Right, in Washington, D.C. pretty consistently ranks number one when Amazon does this ranking as well, where they rank the most literary cities in terms of uh, the cities that order the highest number of books from Amazon. And there's always speculation about how Washington, D.C., being so small, um, orders so many books per capita. But when you start to factor in the number of people, uh, you know, lawmakers and elected officials, particularly who maybe own a second home in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. where they are just working for part of the year and they're ordering books to be sent there. Um, that's just a whole other level of affluence and edu- average educational attainment um, and you know, very strong city resources. Library resources don't get much better than living in the place that has the Library of Congress. No. And there's a lot of smaller libraries, too. I mean, that's the other thing. And there's a couple universities and um, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk methodology for a second. It's, it's a really pretty detailed study. And in terms of I think in terms of participant selection, there's not a lot, not many bones to pick. Though yeah. I did notice when they were looking for where bookstores were, they just went to yellowpages.com. Oh, <laughs> for information on retail rare and used booksellers as of November 2013. Uh, for retail bookstores, the search term used was bookstores. So, I mean, who knows if that turns up everything or not? Mm-hmm. I, let me ask you this question: Let's say we were about to try to make to decide the most literate series in America. Uh, what stats do you want? Because some of these I don't care about. Like, to be to be truthful, I'm not sure anymore that newspaper circulation tells when, me much. And I was wondering if newspaper circulation counts only for the number of people that subscribe to the print editions of the newspaper. Or like, if you live in D.C. and you pay the paywall fee for the Washington Post online, does that count as circulation? Mm-hmm. Um, there's some operational questions there. I think I'm troubled by this definition of a city as literate because of the resources that are available to it. Like, I think, I think of operationally defining literate as like how literate is each person who lives in this Mm -hmm. city. And so I would want, I think educational attainment is a valid measure there, but I would want to know like how many books per year do people who live in these cities read? Right. Yeah. You know, that's having access to the you know, having access to the tools that make it possible for you to become literate is not the same thing as being literate. Yeah, and so the library data, for example, information. I'm reading directly from their website. Information regarding library staff per capita, volumes per capita, circulation per capita, and branches per capita was gleaned from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Nothing wrong there, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I don't know. Like, does does having more resources and throwing more resources at libraries that leads to increased circulation mean the city is more literate, or would you do some sort of ratio, like you know, circulation per dollar spent on library? Yeah, like, wouldn't that mean this? The population is more literate e- because they they check out books in a good ratio, even despite not having mm-hmm. good resources. Even if the aggregate number of books checked out isn't as high, does that make sense? Yeah, it seems like if they could take this data and mash it up with the Amazon data about books purchased, and since you know Amazon being the largest book retailer also has access to the number of books read, particularly. In, their, in in Kindles, they know when you have read right. um, a book that you bought. If Amazon ever felt like opening the kimono and yeah. mashing it up, it would be really interesting. Like I do think that the Amazon definition of most literate or most literary hits a little closer to the way that 
that I think of what it is to be literate or to be literary, um, which isn't just, you know, having access to these things, but yeah, using them. Notice this study didn't ask anybody about the number of books they read last year. Right. And, and I mean, it makes them or interesting. Bought or or gave or yeah, I think checked. It, I mean, checked out is the only one, but everything else is. It is makes not interesting assumptions like that educal, educational attainment equals being literate or is a part of it. It's totally possible to have the highest uh, degree available in your field and not have read a book last year. Right. Well, and also it could be that if you, this, the educational attainment marks someone at the end of their educational journey. But mm -hmm. if you could chart a way of where the most people are getting educated, like mm. how many degrees are uh, earned per capita might be more interesting than the degrees already had. Because frankly, when you're in school, you're reading more than when you're out of school. For right. Most people. And what does internet resources mean? Well, this is a little confusing. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, let's see. Where was it? Like the internet is the same everywhere. So are we talking about public mm. libraries that make the internet you know, available to people who don't that. have it at home? There's nothing about that in their methodology, like when internet resources. But mean. Jeff, I have questions. <laughs> Well, it could be the number. Uh, it could be the number. Uh, <laughs> Just makes uh, sense. I mean, it could be the number of computer terminals. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be Classi the number of people who have who have broadband at home. I guess. Or like classes, you know, digital literacy yeah, classes. We talked about librarians doing digital literacy that's work. That's not on their methodology. They don't explain what that is at all. Um, yeah, that's a problem, huh? Hmm. Unless I'm missing it. Um, okay. Oh, visit a newspaper TV website in the past seven days, purchased a book on the internet in the past 12 months, used a mobile device to read a newspaper in the last past 30 days, and currently owns an e-reader. Mm. Were obtained from Scarborough Research's February 2012 to March 2013 USA release. Currently okay. owns an e-reader is an interesting one too, particularly with tablets, Yeah, you know, rising up mm -hmm. and the, uh, the yeah, fall of the dedicated e-reader. So uh, we'll we'll drop a link in the show notes there. Um, let's see. I would love for someone who has the time and interest to comb back through all the data these people collected and pull out other things that no one noticed. I think, uh, so I don't know how they picked, I think it's just by size. Mm -hmm. um, but so sev 77 cities were ranked and maybe the bottom 10 are worth just talking about. Interestingly, they're all in Texas or California. Huh. Well, those are really big states. Yeah, so I guess you have a higher propensity of likelihood because it has more large cities in it. Mm -hmm. But Corpus Christi, Texas, and Bakersfield, California bring up the rear. I don't know anything about those cities, I have to admit. Yeah, I don't admit. either. Stockton, California, El Paso, San Antonio, Anaheim, Fresno, and Chula Vista, California. Um, Los Angeles ranks in it at disappointing number 64. That's the worst of the major American cities. Hmm. Um Phoenix, number 59, Houston, 56. Um, let's see, what are the big cities? Well, in? Phoenix, Houston, these are places that also have huge suburban populations. Yeah, Detroit, 41, Dallas, 37, mm -hmm. um, Chicago, 28 and a half. <laughs> uh, Austin, there's Austin at 21, New oh, Orleans, okay. 19, New York at 16, right between be more in uh, Honolulu. Oh, nice. Um, Kansas City, 13. Not what, bad. what? 
And Portland just coming outside the top 10 at number 11. So Kansas I guess City I'm does gonna... have some great bookstores. Yeah, they do. They do. It's a really good point. All right. What's next? Wait, we got more. What yeah, is That was next? a good one. Well, I don't think we oh. can go deep into it, but it's worth mentioning that yeah, okay. the author earnings report was released uh, this week. Um, some some authors, namely Hugh Howie, who uh, wrote the Wool series that he began as self-published and then was hugely successful and was picked up by, I believe it was Simon & Schuster, um, for a traditional publishing model, got together with another author who uh, had the ability to build and program, uh, let's see, they they built a program that crawls yeah, the spider, internet. Basically. Yeah, they that so they built a spider that crawls the internet and grabbed data on um, nearly seven thousand ebooks from several best selling genre categories on Amazon. And they're trying to answer the question of is it really still uh, more profitable or financially smarter for authors to go the traditional publishing route or the self published route? And it, is the answer to that question? different based on what kind of books you write, what kinds of stories you tell. Like maybe literary writers do better with traditional publishing and genre writers do better um, with self-publishing. And so they use this spider to collect all of this data. And then Hugh Howie at authorearnings.com uh, wrote a big report and there are graphs and there is information and there's a lot of interpretation uh, of what these various trends could mean what's interesting is that it's not actual statistical analysis yeah there's there's data there's observation there's observation but there's no analysis here i mean i think you can take it as read we're not super interested in this I, let's let's go up just one level the conversation about self publish self publishing has changed from oh my god mm-hmm. to uh should you do it at all to you know it's you know it's a good option for some people. And this is, I think that the top level thing for me about this one is the conversation is moving towards it's better than traditional pub- publishing for a lot of people. That it's not even if like you, it's good to self-publish if you can't get traditionally published. It's maybe you should self-publish even if you could get traditionally mm-hmm. published. And I think that's a real sea change. And Howie, it's interesting that Howie is also the one that's spearheading this larger conversation because he is an outlier as well. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean it's not well, meaningful to notice that he exists, but it's hard to know. Like, uh, I you find know, it's kind of like taking writing advice from a great writer. Right. It's like, hmm. Well, I find it interesting that he is um, such a passionate acolyte for self-publishing because he then sold his series to a giant traditional publisher right, yeah. and went that route. But he is very mm-hmm. outspoken, um, and so. It's also important to notice if you go to authorearnings.com and you look at this report to bear in mind that like he's got skin in the game. Yeah, I'm not sure though what kind of skin it is. I mean, does it help him at all? Like I'm not sure why. Well, if you're the guy who's declaring that self-publishing is awesome and the future and everyone should think about it, never mind the fact that you sold your series to a giant traditional publisher, you've got something riding on the results turning out to also indicate that it's better for people to self-publish. Um, and that's not to say that Hugh Howie has sinister, uh, no, you no. know, 
he's not doing i don't think he's doing anything sinister with his data interpretation but this is what, what we call structural what bias humans do it's yeah, right and right. it's a confirmation bias you will look at your data and and look to see the patterns that confirm your ideas and and beliefs and this is just a thing that human beings do from um, a methodology data standpoint the two big problems here is amazon and bookscan yeah um and for for a couple reasons one is they're looking at self-published authors on amazon and then extrapolating from there about larger trends. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that Amazon's very bad with data. Even the, the program they built doesn't give them sales figures. They can only extrapolate. So they don't really know. Um, the, the, the other part that's interesting is that Amazon is a huge player in books, but it's not the only player in books. And it's disproportionately good at selling self-published titles because a lot of people do Amazon exclusives. Right. So to say that the, the snapshot you're getting of Amazon is representative of the field as a whole is inaccurate for a variety of really super important ways. Same with BookScan. Um, BookScan is a, um, it's, the, it's the traditional tool that publishers use to track book sales, but it also is notoriously incomplete. It only tracks a certain percentage of books from a certain kind of outlet. Um, they're both biased, and I don't think you can say, well, if this one's biased in this way and this one's biased in the other way, it, they come out even on one side. It's kind of like that old joke about statis, uh, statisticians. You know, three of them they're um, they're uh, they're out uh, shooting uh, targets, and the first one misses ten feet to the left, and the second one misses ten feet to the right, and the third one says, "I hit it." Um, you know, like it doesn't work that way, right? Yeah. Um, so what else do you think about that's worth saying here? You know, I just I think there's some really interesting stuff. And it's also just interesting what which pieces of data they chose to look at. Like the very first graph um, here is the average review score out of five stars for these top 7,000 genre ebook bestsellers. And it's broken out by who published those. So the top, the average review score um, for an ebook bestseller that was indie published, the one from a smaller medium publisher, one's from Amazon publishing, one's from Big Five, or one's from, sing, you know, uncategorized single authors. And there, um, the lowest star ranking is for genre ebooks that were published by one of the Big Five. And it looks like it's about four point one five stars, uh, where the highest is indie published ebook bestsellers that look to be about 4.35 or 4.4 mm -hmm. stars. And so it's, it's maybe a quarter to a half a stars difference. Um, that's interesting, but we don't know because this program doesn't know if that difference is statistically significant, if it right. actually means anything um, and can be attributed to the to the, the publishing source, or if it's just chance that this is how this data worked out and that another collection of ebook bestsellers from these publishing sources would have showed star rankings that looked mm -hmm. different. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's there's a of lot questions. of interesting, a lot of interesting stuff. I I think another top level point that both you and I are frustrated and curious about is that we don't have good data at all. I mean, right. it's not like, it's not like how he's looking at the wrong data because there's no right data to look at. Yeah, that's, uh, it's frustrating. I was asking a different question about BookScan on Twitter the other day, and a few authors told me that pretty consistently BookScan only captures 60 to 70% of their book sales. And they know that because they see their BookScan numbers and then they get their royalties royalty checks, yeah. statements from their publishers that show them all of their books sold. So they can compare and sort of get, like if you get that consistently, then you can guess maybe when your BookScan report comes um, what your actual number 
is, if you know the discrepancy routinely. But um, part of it is that BookScan is faulty. The New York Times bestselling reporting is faulty. Amazon doesn't really disclose very much. Publishers don't data. either. Like we, we Authors don't give us any data. Yeah. We got no data here, yeah, man. It I was, sucks. It's the worst. It is the worst. I was arguing um, with one of our coworkers yesterday about a totally different thing. And it, it came down to like, well, I can't answer that because we know nothing. We know nothing. We, <laughs> we know just, nothing. We know nothing. And I, that's what I find frustrating about these studies, but also a little bit dangerous about big reports of yeah. studies like this is it it makes it look like we know some stuff when really we know nothing because the data is completely incomplete. Right. It, <laughs> it, it, all of these studies should have a big like header that says, by the way, just in case you don't know, we know nothing. Right. But here's what we know about the nothing we don't know. Right. Here's how we've interpreted the limited data that's available to us. But to use that limited data to try to draw some big, some big picture conclusions, particularly about like, should you publish by yourself or should you go with a traditional publisher? Does that matter with your genre? Like those are, those are big career decisions that writers have to make and to be making those decisions um, based on studies that look like they have conclusive findings, but you can't have conclusive findings when you don't have complete data. And some, sometimes incomplete data is even worse than no data. Yeah, it's, it really can be. I I'm not sure this is a case of that. Um, it's knowing just enough to be dangerous, I think. Right, yeah, to some degree. Well, speaking of data, <laughs> um, I found this study this week. Uh, Phonerbooks.com did a retroactive study of bookstore sales adjusted for inflation since 2005. And adjusted for inflation is a thing that makes you all tingly, oh, isn't it? Oh, I love this because, you know, um, I don't know if we talked about it in the show, but the Strand Bookstore, my beloved Strand here in New York City, uh, tweeted over the holidays. I don't remember. I think it was the day after Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. We, that, we tweeted that they, about this. Yeah, didn't that they talk about said it. they had their best sales day ever. And that got passed around the Booktornet like wildfire because everyone is looking for good news, for one thing. So talk about confirmation bias. Or I don't even know what's the opposite. Not what you think is true, but what you hope to be true. Um, aspiration bias, maybe. Let's just call it that. Yeah. Um, and I I said, I don't want to be a downer, but shouldn't it be their best year ever because of <laughs> every year <laughs> for inflation? Because it, you know, over time, one and a half to two percent consumer price uh, inflation makes it makes a big difference. So this study adjusts for inflation over time. And so in 2002, book retail bookstores, right? This is bookstores, not online stuff. So this is brick and mortar. Brick and mortar. 2002 adjusted for inflation. In 2002, brick and mortar bookstores did $20 billion in sales. Okay. In 2012, this is the most recent data they could get that was accurate. They did adjusted for inflation thirteen and a half billion dollars in sales. Oh, oh, is it two thousand five? I thought it was two thousand five, two thousand thirteen. Oh, I'm looking at the graph. I'm oh, sorry. okay, okay, sorry. Oh, just since two thousand five, it's down thirty six percent. Ah, that's the headline. All right. Yeah. Um, so because it, it went up from two thousand two to two thousand seven, mm -hmm. it went up um, in real dollars, but it went down from real dollars. Yeah. The the peak of bookstore sales adjusted for inflation was two thousand five at $21 billion. So from 2002 to 2005, it was going up mm -hmm. still. But then since then, it's been it's down 36% adjusted for inflation. Not adjusted for inflation, it's gone from $15.5 billion to $13.5 billion. And if you give that stat without adjustment, it's like, oh, that's not that bad, <laughs> right? right? It's like it's down, but you know, you'd think with Amazon and Kindles and blah, 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 like it's not that bad. Because that's what you don't know what you're doing if you just do that. You have to adjust for inflation. So... Um, 
you know, it has Amazon, North America Media, Barnes & Noble, Chain, and Borders. And some of this is border chain sales just going to zero, right? Right. They went from $3 billion adjusted for inflation to zero. And that was in, in 2012. Yeah. And Amazon has gone from $2 billion in 2002, excuse me, 2002 to $9.5, $10 billion by 2012. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a vertical line after about 2008. These are pretty remarkable. Isn't this amazing? Mm-hmm. Um, anything to say about this? I couldn't find a methodology problem. I mean, if the yeah, data no, reported it's... is good, which we don't really know, it's a pretty simple you math know, move. What's also interesting and amazing about it, and I guess not surprising, but kind of depressing in the way that publishing covers publishing, is that like this study is still just buried at a, a relatively small website. No one else is talking about this. It's not getting passed it's just around. Us. Like, no one wants to talk about the reality here that when you adjust for inflation, bookstore sales are down 36% in the last eight well, years. And check out 2011, is, check out 2011 to 2012. Yeah, this is not the sexy headline of we had our best sales day ever. No. Never mind that whole inflation business. Right, yeah. Um, and no one's talking about it. And that here's this the other just thing. Inflation's been bananas. tame. Inflation's yeah. been tame since about 2007, 2008, when we had that big crash and the Fed just kept interest rates low. Like this number could look a lot worse if it was like a normal inflationary period, not to get all financial data on you. Um, yeah, in 2011, the dog leg down adjusted for inflation went from 16 to 13 and a half. So two and a half billion dollars mm-hmm. less in one calendar year. It's uh, Listeners, you should just click this link in the show notes yeah. at bookriot.com slash podcast and look at these graphs and see how you know, how really Nasty. remarkable these, yeah. these changes And that 2011 to 2012, are, I should say, includes that border. So a lot of, almost all of that you know, could be borders. Also, this just, it, it explains and points back to the echo chamber. And I guess this probably happens in other media. Yeah. Like I, I would assume that like there are music people who are only publishing positive, happy headlines. But like this is the responsibility of journalists and, mm-hmm. and media to really talk about what's going on in the industry. And they're not. Um, we are not getting like the full story if this is a piece of the full story and it looks like it is and it's accurate and we haven't seen a methodology problem then like publishers weekly needs to be talking about this and not relying on link bait headlines about how everything is getting better um we we don't know that and it really just depends on how you define better there's um it will be an unpopular thing to say, I suppose, but uh, as long as people continue to read books, I don't really particularly care where they come from. Right. Um, it's not a bad thing for the universe, uh, objectively, for there to be fewer bookstores or for bookstore sales to go down. So if the story is more people are reading, but fewer people are buying them from brick and mortars, that's interesting. We should know it. Like, I, I just am, it, it is bothering me so much that like this story is I'm just looking buried. at the post and the I'm only link back, the only link back on the post is mine from critical <laughs> linking from a couple days ago. I'm just, it makes me all sputtery. Let's talk about something else. No, I got two more things I have to say about this. So you, you have to sputter a while longer. <laughs> okay. uh, the se- The second graph that does Barnes and Noble borders and Amazon Barnes and Noble since 2002 is actually moderately up mm-hmm. from 3.75 billion to about 4.75 billion. Um, so that's interesting mm-hmm. in, in our ongoing interest in Barnes and Noble buoyed in, to no doubt in some degree by the demise of borders that that could have a dog leg would have maybe had more of a dog leg down than it did otherwise. 
Amazon just ate everybody because they, you know, they would go yeah. all the way up. Well, it's um, it's and, worth mentioning that this also doesn't include like independent bookstores. Sure, yeah, yeah. that's right, that's right. Um, and uh, the speaking of there, our last uh, story about Hugh Howie and eBooks, the guy I shouldn't mention this guy's name. Um, what's this guy's name? Kevin something? No, I'm sorry, he didn't. He didn't even. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll put it in the sh- link in the show notes. He, it's his own blog, but I can't find the name easily right now. He says. The reason I don't show a graph with ebook sales on is that I don't trust any of the numbers, which is kind of what we were just saying about Hugh Howey's study. It's like there's so many weird assumptions you have to make to try to come up with any data. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy's just like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, maybe there's something to be done, but this is, this is, not, uh, this is not something I have much trust in. So good job, Phoner. Yes, that's, that's F-O-N-E-R. Books. com. Check that out. A lot of interesting studies that happen. This is one that I read for juicy stats uh, from time to time. All right, where are we going now? Man, Somewhere we, else we, happy? We fell way, way into methodology corner. Yeah, we did. Those are <laughs> this great, week. though. Uh, here is something else happy. I'm just skipping around in our notes mm-hmm. for the show now. We've talked about libraryreads.org before, but I think it's um, always worth mentioning again, and it's been a while. Uh, libraryreads.org is a really awesome thing that's created by a bunch of librarians, and every month they just publish a list of the top 10 books that are coming out that month that librarians across the country country love. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, basically extended little shelf talkers or reviews. What I think is great about this list consistently is that there's usually like maybe one or two books that I was even aware of at all. And the rest are things that librarians are reading because it's their job to know all kinds of stuff that's coming out. And they're really great at introducing readers to, uh, to books that are not getting top line publicity, but that are still, that are still very you know, interesting and great reads. So it's led off uh, this month by The Weight of Blood by Laura McHugh. Uh, That's marked as the favorite. There's a blurb there from Jennifer Winberry, who's a librarian in Flemington, New Jersey. Uh, There are thrillers. There are what looks like some women's fiction. Uh, There's A Circle of Wives by Alice LaPlante, uh, which is terrific. Um, She's a writer that I really love. But just tons of variety here. And so if you are, if you happen to be in the sad position of not, you know, having a a great library or a good bookstore near you with good recommendations, uh, and you want, you know, just some additional variety in your book recommending life, libraryreads.org. Yeah, it's good. It has cool stuff. I mean, they're also not books you're, I'm hearing a lot about in a whole bunch of other places. You know, sometimes books just become the thing that people are Mm -hmm. recommending at the moment. And I wouldn't say any of these really are that. Yeah. Um, Lauren Oliver is a name I've heard before, but boy, I have to admit. Right. This um, is some good under the radar stuff. It's nice. Yeah. Uh, mostly women, mm-hmm. if you care about that. Um, not super great about other kinds of diversity as far as I can tell, but uh, check that out. We'll, we'll drop a link in there. And that's every month they do that? Is they that do right? it every month. Yeah. Every the month. site is so, updated every month. Let's see. Do they have some sort of, yeah, Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. Pinterest, Tumblr. If you want to follow library reads, you can get a... Uh, a fresh piping hot set of recommendations every week. Okay. Well, let's see. Where should we go from here? Well, all, you messed us all up. So, I'm nah, so we're all, uh, can we talk about the vampire diaries thing? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Lead us off. So we've been talking ever since they announced it um, about Amazon's Kindle world 
program, Kindle World, Kindle Worlds, uh, where they are getting licensing permission from uh, publishers and from creators of popular series and characters. And then you can go and sign up and write fan fiction with these licensed characters um, and Amazon will publish it. And so, um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation back and forth and we've discussed um, the pros and cons on the show before, but this is a really interesting, really uh, weird story, yeah. really weird that came out on the all earlier this week that um, LJ Smith, who was known for her series, The Vampire Diaries. Apparently, when she started the series in the 90s, it was not a series that she created. The publisher um, came up with the idea and then found her and got her to be the writer for them. But um, because that was the order of events, she doesn't have any rights to uh, these stories, this world that she created and wrote. And because she doesn't have any rights to them, um, <laughs> she can't keep writing the books for the publisher. They don't want her to write any more of them. The publisher is done, but they licensed the Vampire Diaries characters through Kindle Worlds. Yep. So LJ Smith went and joined Kindle Worlds, and now she is finishing her own series that she created by writing fan fiction, It's essentially. kind of an amazing story. It is. It's wild, man. Like, it's kind of a loophole. I mean, I wonder if she was thrilled or sad when she found out she could do this. I mean, I guess she did it, so she's right. got to be somewhat happy, but she was really stuck in a corner. Um it's anyway, just so that's really cool. Yeah, that's really fascinating. The, yeah, the piece says it's the first work of unofficial official canon, <laughs> and <laughs> there's there some there are some looks at other fan fiction that was written, um, you know, by just readers of the series during the silent period. I think from uh, 2005 to 2012, mm -hmm. um, between you know when she stopped writing for it. But it's a good long uh, in depth piece by Mike Pearl at the All. He also writes for Vice um, and. It's just this is a cool discovery um, that I don't know if he came up with this or if, you know, somehow he just stumbled across yeah. L.J. Smith's story. But it's like good on you, L.J. Smith, for finding the workaround. And this is really interesting. Like, mm -hmm. I wonder if J.K. Rowling will end up licensing her characters I was, out. I wonder if there's other authors in her position. I mean, that have. Because she lost the li or did she sell the license to them? That must have been what happened. Well, I think since she didn't create the series, oh, it wasn't her idea. Like the publisher right. had this idea to create a vampire series for teen girls. This was pre Twilight. This was like in 1990. Um, right. And so they went and found her, which is a thing publishers do. Uh, and like, a lot of popular series that are published with one name on them are also written by many people. Like if your kids are into the Warriors series, which is um, a middle reader series about warrior cats, um, the <laughs> author name on that is Aaron Hunter, but it's actually written by like a dozen different people. Um, and I recently learned that Carolyn Keene, who wrote Nancy Drew, was just a nom de plume for many people or became a nom de plume for many people after Carolyn Keene created it. I'm not sure which way mm -hmm. that worked, but, um, I, it, it's possible, you know, it happens. Publishers come up with the idea, then they go find the writer and the publisher maintains the license and the rights to, to that world and that those characters, because it was the publisher's idea first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of maybe someone that wrote for like a popular series, like, you know, Ludlum has a bunch of people writing born mm -hmm. books. Mm hmm. And I guess if, in theory, if that became part of Kindle Worlds, one of those, I don't even know what you call those co-writers, yeah. I guess. I'm not even sure. They could come back and write one of their own. Or like um, the Bond estate has licensed or, you know, hired people mm -hmm. to write subsequent Bond novels. If Bond ever became part of Kindle Worlds or some equivalent program, you know, Ian, um, 
Ian's Fleming books could be they were written by Jeffrey Deaver did one and someone else recently did another one. They could come back without the permission and the blessing of the estate and do their own, which would be pretty pretty interesting. I know that Jeffrey Deaver Bond book has gotten a lot of um, positive notice. I've always meant to read that, but uh, let's do some more uh, new trends in publishing. All right. Um, so there's a piece in the Times about how publishers, in some cases, are rolling out books in a series faster than they once did. Um, and this, it's using this, this series from Jeff Vandermeer, which I know nothing about. Uh, Annihilation is the first novel, and then the second book will come out in May, Authority, only months after the first installment. Mm-hmm. So this is a new, this is a new phenomenon um, where usually they at least, if the books were done, I mean, waiting for the next book to be done is a whole different ball game, right? Yeah. But if the books are done, they'd usually wait a year. You could do a paperback. The paper would be back when the new hardback came out. So you have like a double bump there at the same time. But now they're trying to do, do them faster because, well, shockingly, if someone likes the first book, they want the second book now. <laughs> and it is a new trend to do it this way. I don't like the way this piece was written, the I have to admit. F- I think the framing here is all wrong. It's all kinds of bass ackwards. Like they, they, they say they're calling audiences impatient. Here's right? what I think happened. If you want my theory. Yeah, no, hey, I'm ready. (laughs) I think a lot of this has to do with how self-publishing has risen. Because if you self-publish your books, Mm -hmm. then you can put out your first one. And if it's doing well and you finish your second one, you don't have to wait a year to put out the next one. Like you've got your rabid fans. You can put out the next book in the series, case in point, E.L. James. You know, she, she put the Fifty Shades books out like very quickly on the heels of each other because her fans were ready and were asking for them. And so readers now have that relationship with many writers that they're able to publish their books quickly and they're not held back by the traditional publishing model that takes for freaking ever Mm -hmm. um, between the time that you turn your book in and when it's actually a book that is for sale on shelves that people can buy and have in their grubby little hands and read. Um, And so traditional publishing is feeling the pressure Um, that's created by the immediacy of self-publishing and that readers are becoming more accustomed to. I don't think it has anything to do with fans being more impatient now than they were before. Um, I think I was just as impatient to get the frickin' last Harry Potter book as I could have possibly been. Oh, for sure. Um, And the the counter-argument has been, well, we released them in the way we used to with a year between so the book could build, which this is also, there's no data. Like, is it... Is it were the series successful because you had audiences build, or because they were successful despite people having to wait? E- either of them could be true. And, and we know nothing. We know nothing. That's that's got to be the show time. <laughs> we just know nothing, and but publishing does a lot of things just because it is the thing that feels right. Well, I'd love to be proven wrong. Like, you know, we have this, all this comparative data between, you know, if you release it five months after, it's you get X percent of sales. Mm-hmm. But if you wait 14 percent, we do 100. Oh, no, but no. But that, I would love no. to see that. Um, they say, you know, one of the – and this is this is just a complete claim made with no data that this, that this publishing cycle has worked for the Song of Fire and Ice. Well – Wait a minute. There's, How do we know that it worked? For it? There's it no could comparison. Be the, it could be that he would have sold twice as many books if they came out every year rather than every five yeah. years. We have no way There's, of knowing. I was on a Twitter rant earlier this week about how uh, 
how saying this thing has stood the test of time doesn't actually oh, mean God. anything. Yeah, right. The fact that something has lasted a long time doesn't mean that it's good or the best way of doing something. It just means that we either haven't come up with something better yet or we haven't realized how bad the way that we've been doing it forever has been. And I think that that's what's really happening here. Like publishing has just thought, you know, because, because publishing is built to take a long time. It just does take a long time. No one intended right. it that way, but it takes forever from the time you turn your manuscript in until there's an actual book for sale. Like that is the way things are. That's the way mm. things have been. And because that's been the only option, it's been like, well, this works. You know, yep. this is the only thing we have. And so this thing that we have must work. It must work for fans that they have to wait four years in between, uh, if that, uh, if not more, in between their George R. R. Martin books. They must love it that they have to wait two years in between their Harry Potter books. People love anticipation. Like, well, let me you're think about retrofitting this your interpretation to the only model yeah, you have. Yeah, exactly. Like, Harry Potter and Game of Thrones may well be exceptions rather than the rule. I'm thinking about, again, this is the worst kind of anecdote, but since I said that, I get to say this anyway, right? That's how this works. <laughs> that is how that works. You know, like, you and I have done this before where you read a book by an author and you love it and you immediately go back and read everything else, yep. right? Well, it has to be the case that take Harry Potter and Game of Thrones out of it. Take maybe this Annihilation series by Jeff Vandermeer. Someone reads the first book and likes it. Let's say a bunch of them do. And the next book isn't out yet. Well, some percentage of those people are not going to ever hear or remember the next book comes out in 18 months. Right. Especially because books are hard to find out about when they come out, especially if you're a civilian. You're not like a, a grunt like us that follow this stuff every day. Right? Some percentage have to. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand the, this idea of pent-up demand. Like, what does it mean? Why can't you build audience as the books are coming out? After that, I guess it's, I just don't get that. No, it, it, this is massive confirmation bias. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, well, I'm just not sure if there's some logical thing and, I'm missing because pent-up demand, like, the thing about pent-up demand is you're going to lose some well, of that pent-up demand. The, it's just this assumption that, that's, that this is pent-up demand and that you have to have it pent up like basically we we've had no choice in publishing until self-publishing became a thing to have an alternative to this pent-up demand and so we don't know if yeah. like maybe if george R. R. martin's books had come out six months apart from each other like you're saying they could have sold exponentially more because people would have or, or they might not have i'm not saying that's the but, case but i'm not saying the opposite is the case i'm just but, saying we don't know right. you can't make it the is, claims they're making right. based on the data we have right here. it's entirely possible that they could have sold more it's also possible that they could have sold less but we right. don't know we, we don't, don't know, know that this worked for Martin's books. We don't know that it worked for Harry Potter. All we know is that this is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, there's no be, comparison. It's not like there's an A-B test. There's a world in which, I don't know, let's say, uh, take Song of Fire and Ice. The Game of Thrones comes out and then they release all seven books, you know, every three months for, you know, mm -hmm. 21 months. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it doesn't become the phenomenon it is. I'm fully prepared to say that's a possibility. But to say because it was a phenomenon and this is the way... Because this is the publication structure it took and it was a hit doesn't mean that the publication structure it took made it a hit. Right. That, that's, that's fundamental logical fallacy of if A, then B, well, B, then A. No, you can't, you can't infer um, A from B. It just doesn't work that way. So anyway, I think it's interesting to see. This, the new model of every few months makes a lot of sense. The Fifty Shades, they came out all at once, right? Uh, yes. I think it was just boom, all mm -hmm. three. And so that you has could to, read You could one? make the same claim about that one. Uh-huh. And 
by the way, it's the largest publishing phenomenon of all time. <laughs> right. You could write this same piece and say... We've been doing it wrong for 50 years. Right. And you could say authors should have the whole series finished. We should drop them all together at once or drop them six weeks apart, you know, so that people finish one and the next ones are immediately right. available because E.L. James. Yeah. I mean, um, it could be that, you know, people you, love the first book or the second book or third book and there comes a point in the series. I feel like with Harry Potter, that was around book three or four mm -hmm. that, you know, like now it was a publicity event that a new book was coming out. Maybe you don't get that sort of spike in attention if they come out so fast. I, I don't know. That that seems to me possible um, where, you know, you have lines of people in front of the bookstore and that draws some other people to pay mm -hmm. attention. But anyway, boy, we got, I got, I know. I, I got feisty. This is a, I, I think this is also a consider the source thing. And like, man, mm. the New York Times, like, <laughs> could you yeah. possibly tell a crankier get off my lawn story than readers these days are impatient? And so books and are so, coming well, out I guess we got to do this thing like, that's bad for everybody. Right. Like, I guess yeah. now we just have to think about putting things out quickly, or maybe we have to start paying attention to what's happening with self-publishing. Like, it, Readers do what readers do, and it's publishing's job to respond um, ah. to demands. And if readers have new demands because of what's been made available to them by self-publishing, then publishing has to pay attention to that. And this is like, this is just a silly way to have this conversation. Can I, can I also, while we're on our jag, we're on a jag on a high horse right here. We're both on both. Um, <laughs> I am feeling pretty good on this horse. Yeah. So also uh, uh, embedded in this piece and also a larger cultural conversation about a new way of consuming media is, to binge verb, right? Mm -hmm. Binge read, binge Thanks watch. Thanks to Netflix. I don't like this. I don't like this term. Because um, isn't it pejorative to say you binge verb something? Binge typically has negative connotations. Well, because we say it's, you know, we laud often or people laud. Again, oh, I, I read it all in one sitting, right? Right. Well, isn't that binge reading? Yeah, or like I read one James Salter book and then I read everything else he had written that summer. Um, yeah, right. And I guess it's technically... Just because it's a behavior you couldn't do before, it doesn't mean that the new behavior is bad. And I think that's there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird cultural baggage embedded in this idea of binge reading. One is that it's like a psychosis of some kind, like binge eating, right? Right, yeah, it carries, I do, I think it does carry negative connotations. People being like, oh, I just binged on 12 episodes yeah. of Law & Order on Netflix. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's the thing you want to no. do right now, sit down and watch your 12 episodes. That it's, that it's I guess, the other way, it's, outsor it's outside of the appropriate way of consuming whatever it is you're consuming. We didn't used to binge Friends episodes, just be, we couldn't. Right. Um, who's Who's to say that actually this new way of watching and consuming is the more satisfying, interesting, nourishing, whatever good adjective you want to put mm -hmm. on it way. Or it's just the new way. Like, it yeah, doesn't have to be way. better or worse. It's just the new way that we consume media. Netflix drops all of the new Arrested Developments in one day, and I watched all 15 of them in one day. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't know. I just, that's another, that's been in my craw for a while. You let um, it out, Jeff. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not an idiot for that, right? Like, does no. that make some sort of sense that that whole framing of, like, this new way of consuming things is binge verbing makes me want to binge the, on Well, yeah, else. the words that we choose, it seems benign, but the words that we choose to describe our actions do mean things. <laughs> yeah. Well, because isn't, isn't the thing about bulimia that the phrase you use binge and purge? Right. Like, isn't that what it is? Like, mm -hmm. so it makes you sound like you're some sort of 
you've got it, it, some sort of neurosis. Right. It sounds it, like there's like sh- some sort of lack of control. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. That you need to be fixed so you right. don't do this. Right. I I had it happen with the Sarah McLean series where there were three of them out, I think, when I read her first book. And so I read the first one and then I immediately downloaded the other two and read those. But I I, I try to say like, oh, I plowed right through them or mm-hmm. I devoured them or something like it's it, we have uh, we have new appetites for the media right. that we consume and we have new desires about how we can consume those because it, we have many more options. You can, mm-hmm. you know, immediately download things and read three books in a row by the same author or you can watch all 15 new episodes of Arrested Development at once. That's I like it better because I don't want to wait 15 weeks for 30 minutes at a time. Um, right. But that and if you don't like it, that doesn't mean that it's worse than the old way. It just means you like one way of doing TV or doing books better than its preference. And this framing of preference as some sort of like having moral value is yeah, problematic. Well, not even moral value, like clinical, some sort of clinical evaluation right. uh, <laughs> inferred. Um, all right, we're got to get out of here. Let's that do was new a, books. That was a weird hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so new books. There's um, one new book out this week that is the only thing that I'm really excited about this week, mm, but I'm and super, so excited. super excited. This one has run through uh, the book riot, writer's um, barracks like a uh, norovirus. Yeah, I think the first mention of it happened on the site in October. And so in the last four months, a bunch of us have read it, and we're really excited that it's out in the world. And that book is The Marsh by Andy Weir. It's a debut novel about um, a an astronaut who gets left behind on Mars uh, when the rest of his team evacuates in a hurry during an emergency and they think that he's been killed. Uh, and so they're doing what they think is right. They think he's dead. They can't save him. They go, but it turns out that he is not dead. Uh, he's lost communication with Earth. And we are with him reading his, uh, his log, his journal, basically, of the days that he spends on Mars trying to figure out how to survive, how to reestablish establish communication with Earth. Um, He, you know, MacGyver's together uh, cool tools. He's a botanist, this character is. uh, So he also has like potato seeds and he figures out (laughs) how to, or he tries to figure out how to like mix Mars dirt with the soil from Earth that he brought and raise potato plants inside his uh, little habitat on does Mars. He have a, does he have a volleyball named Wilson? He does not, but he might as well. This is just really cast it's, far away. It's... It, it, <laughs> Oh, Jeff. <laughs> uh, it's and it's so the voice is so funny and clever. I'm reading this. I haven't read it yet, but I'm it's great. It. I know we did uh, we did a podcast the morning after I finished it, and I had been up until like three o'clock in the morning finishing <laughs> that's it. Right. Yes, I remember that. Way past my bedtime. It's just it's really funny. The voice is sarcastic and it's so smart, um, and it's just kind of it's super compelling, and the tension builds very well. And uh, Liberty Hardy, who is one of our writers at Book Riot was the first one, the first person that I knew who read it. And she pointed out to me that we also, we just live entirely with him on Mars. Mm. We don't ever really find out anything about this character's life on Earth. We don't um, see information. Like we don't <laughs> he see- He doesn't have the, the ma, his wife and the like three-year-old kid uh, weeping for him or something. But, right. you know, that'd like, be such there, a Hollywood There are thing some to occasional do. flashes to his parents, okay. um, but we just see like people breaking different news to his parents and we see what's happening in the NASA newsroom um, or their, you know, tracking room where NASA is trying to solve the problem. So we get both sides of the story, but we don't ever get him like having an extended
extended daydream about the romantic dinner that he had with his <laughs> girlfriend. We don't even really know if he's ever had a girlfriend. What's that scene in, uh, oh God, what's that terrible movie? Um, Armageddon. Oh, yeah. Where Ben Affleck is getting ready to go up and he's like marching animal crackers across Liv Tyler's stuff. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, God. there's no, no, there is not that. that stuff. Um, yeah. We we just are living entirely in this. There's a guy stuck on Mars and can he survive? And then from the NASA perspective, what can they do to try to solve the problem and get him back? It's so, so, so good. Um, don't rent Gravity, which is out mm. right now. Just skip it and read The Martian instead. It's great. Cool. And uh, we have a new book. Oh, that's right. We do. We do. We we have our, we edited a book. Mm-hmm. Our second one. Yeah. Actually. So um, I think we mentioned this on the show before, but uh, last year, Book Riot, we did a Kickstarter for Start Here Volume 2. It's the companion, I know you're going to be shocked to hear, to Start Here <laughs> Volume 1. Uh, read your way through 25 amazing authors. So we've done 50 now in two volumes. And the second version is available now to buy as an ebook. And we go through 25 authors, um, each written by a Book Riot staff member or contributing editor or writer. Um, Rebecca wrote on James Salter. Uh, I wrote on Faulkner, Morrison, and Roth. Um, also includes, let's see, Ursula K. Le Guin. Who else do we have? I don't have the, I didn't pull up the list right in front of me. It's got John Steinbeck. Um, Alan Moore. Right? Alan Moore. We've got David Mitchell. Um, uh, there's a really nice range, I think, of cl- you yeah. know, classics to contemporary, all sorts of different genres. Oh, Preeti wrote a really great chapter on Colin McCann. Oh, yeah. And Rita did a very nice chapter on the adult work of uh, Raoul Dahl, which is mm-hmm. good. Um, our friend Loyal did a really great chapter on Ann Carson. Liberty wrote about Charles Portis. Our good friend Jen Northington wrote about, let's see, she did. She did Le Guin, China Bieville. And there was another one, and I don't remember which one it is now. Uh, Rushdie, Sal- uh, Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. Virginia Woolf's in here, Faulkner, Octavia Butler's in there. That's one I need to read. John Green, Jennifer Egan, Asimov, Orwell, Flannery O'Connor, um, Dorothy Parker, uh, let's see, Doug Copeland, Dave mm-hmm. Eggers, Daniel Woodrell, Cole McCann, and I think we've said them all now. Yeah, so if you want to get started with any of those authors and you haven't known where yep. to start, uh, you can pick up Start Here Volume it's 2. All three the usu- bucks. It, yeah, three bucks. on all the usual suspects for your internet. It's ebook only. Um, yep. So search for it in your ebook store of preference, and we'll drop links in the show notes. And before we close, I just have to do a brief shout out to a thing that I love. Okay. Yes. The oh, n- yes. Speaking of Toni Morrison. Yeah. Oh, nice. The, you and the segues, Jeff. Really. I know. I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, and now a brief moment for Jeff's humility. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, the the most New- humble man in the world. The New York Public Library, unsurprisingly, hosts some incredible author events. And lucky for all of us, they record all of them. And you can get them as a video or an audio podcast that's live from the NYPL. Search for it on iTunes. Um, I just discovered this this week, but they've been doing it for at least a year or two. And I'm so sad that I didn't know about it mm. sooner. We um, can binge listen now. We can so binge listen. But like, <laughs> as an example, I have spent an hour driving around this week running errands and listening to Juno Diaz interview Tony Morrison. You didn't think you were going to get to that until you you died and went to it's the pearly like, gates. Like, I 
couldn't I couldn't picture what this would be like before I started listening to it because Juno Diaz is so profane and just like gritty yeah. and Toni Morrison is she like walks around with a big bag of gravitas right and she yeah and she's just so wonderful and serious and the two of them together in conversation is remarkable and it turns out that Juno Diaz you know loves Toni Morrison and has read all of her work and he asks some wonderful mm. smart questions I'm getting off the call to listen to her she reveals some like this is my version of going to church listening to juno (laughs) diaz and tony morrison talk to each other about writing and literature and her writing in particular for an hour and a half it's so so good so search for live from the nypl on itunes or your podcatcher of choice you will have many many hours of happiness and you will learn things all right we better wrap up the show on that note Uh, i'm jeff o'neill you can find me on twitter at reading ape she is rebecca shinsky you can find her at twitter at weirdly enough rebecca shinsky s-c-h-i-n-s-k-y Please, if you want to, rate the show on iTunes, give it a review, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Some other places like SoundCloud and Stitcher, uh, you can do it there. We're on those platforms. I know little about it, except that we're there. Uh, let's see. You can find Start Here, Volume 2, and Volume 1 at Amazon, Kobo, Goodreads, uh, excuse me, not Goodreads. Um, well, you can rate it there, review it there. That's nice. Uh, the Apple Bookstore. And um, let's see, what else should we tell the people? You can follow us online at Book Riot on Twitter, facebook.com slash Book Riot. We share different things across all of those uh, communities. So hang out with us in as many places as you want. You know, we're on Tumblr and Pinterest also. Um, If you feel like reviewing, oh no, Jeff just said that. If you feel like reviewing the show. Also, there are only, there's less than two weeks left to subscribe to our next quarterly box. Oh, right, yes. Uh, What do we have to on that, 1,200? More than 1,200 people are going to get Mm. awesome book mail from us um books that we love bookish stuff um that we love and recommend that we think should we, you should we say to... that we're, we're we have a limited number or can we not say that should we, we do say that? that we only we do have a limited number of well, there's them. a limited number should we say what it is do people care what well we can sell up to 1500 that's right so there's, no, there's there's only there's less than 300 left so uh, if you're interested in doing it right go to quarterly.co slash products and you'll see book riot right there on the homepage. page um, for 50 bucks a quarter you'll get a box of awesome stuff in the mail from us plus publishers are throwing in uh, to make it extra great and so in this box that will be shipped on march 5th um, a bunch of randomly selected readers will also get um, early copies of forthcoming books uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have access to Mm -hmm. Uh, we've got exclusive extras from authors that add content to to the books um, stuff you won't be able to get anywhere else either um, and just some really cool things I've had a lot of fun working on this the response to our first box was really strong Um, and if you are into that subscription model if you want people to send you great book mail I promise you will not be disappointed quarterly.co slash products and thanks so much to warby parker for sponsoring the show this week go to warbyparker.com slash book riot that lets you know that you found out about warby park warby parker from us and that maybe they'll come back and sponsor the show again and also you should just check out warby parker if you're someone who wears glasses i mean seriously like outside of the sponsorship i talk about this anyway which is awesome that they'll pay us a little bit money to talk about it that's like a double win uh, in my book so i get we're it's a long show we had lots of things to lots say. Lots of fun. I, this is one of those, I was like, there's not too much here. I mean, there's some interesting stuff, but boy, we... So many methodology so questions. So much. Got us uh, all revved up. So we will talk to you. We have a guest. Amanda's back next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Rebecca will be back the week after. Uh, I was the guest on the Dear Book Nerd podcast this week with our friend Rita. So when this show, if you're listening to this show, you can go listen to that one as well. Rebecca was the guest for the first couple of weeks. I'm on for a couple of episodes um, and had lots of fun over there. Dear Book Nerd, you can find that on iTunes or all the other podcast places. And Rebecca, 
That's it, huh? Happy Valentine's Day, Jeff. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye.